Hi there, John Porteous of the Lovells Township Historical Society here, and you're listening to the Backcast Podcast. This week, Glenn Everly and I sit down with Joe Guild. Joe is a guide, a native of the Grayling area, and a very driven young man. Uh, really enjoyed speaking with him. Uh, really appreciate his reverence for the watershed. So sit down, kick back, relax, and enjoy. Glenn Everly, and we're here in White uh, Tie Room on Chupac Lake and interviewing Joe Guile, a uh, well-known river guide. You tie flies too, don't you? Not as much as I used to, but I uh-huh. tied a lot of flies for quite a few years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to talk to Joe about his guiding experience and some stories and just kind of let it flow and some of them uh, we may have to edit out, but uh, we don't have to worry about that. <laughs> We're pretty good at that. If, so if we do, we will. Uh, and Joe, did we just let it go? And Mike isn't even here, so. Yep. We just uh, uh, maybe we start with uh, how you got into fly fishing and when you started guiding. Right. Uh, yeah. So I grew up on the West Branch of Big Creek, uh, not too far from Lovells here, and both of my parents were school teachers. Johannesburg Lewiston and you know they had a house on the creek 80 acres and my dad you know still to this day is a big fisherman and a big game hunter and you know having acreage in the middle of nowhere in northern Michigan you know growing up as a kid was that's how you lived Uh, it was you know hunting and fishing and anything outdoors and you know looking back on it you know, I didn't didn't know anything else. That was just that's just the way it was. So it became ingrained in me at a young age. Uh, in terms of the fishing, fly fishing specifically, you know, some of my very early childhood memories <clears throat> would be down on the bridge, crossing the creek in front of my parents' house, um, watching and listening to my dad casting a fly rod from the bridge and the smell of the river. The smell of his waders, uh, the sound of what was probably a fiberglass fly rod, you know, sort of whipping through the air and, you know, every once in a while the excitement of a, you know, a, a fish that he would catch or bring to hand. And I mean, I still, even to this day, I have very, very clear, vivid memories of that. Of your dad on Big Creek. Yeah. When I was, you know, at that time maybe seven, eight, nine years old. Oh, I mean, I, I was just an observer at that point, but still sort of fascinated by it. And I think probably about sixth or seventh grade, which means I would have been 11 or 12 years old maybe, I had a good report card one spring <laughs> and got to go down to Jay's and pick out a, well, I, I chose to pick out a fly rod. That's what I wanted to get. And I still remember it was a seven and a half foot, five weight browning fiberglass fly rod. And Ooh. you know, there there it took off from there for me. Uh, Creole, waders, we all remember what the waders were like back in those days. Not that I'm that old, but. Um, and then, you know, as a kid, you know, from age 11 or 12 until I was old enough to drive, having the summer off with two parents who were teachers who also had the summer off. Um, You know, most days if we were home, I was jumping in the creek. You know, those fish probably could smell my boot prints when I jumped in that that river every day, but... um, Now, was it, did they have two places or did they live on Big Creek full time? They did, at that, Way back when, they had a house in Johannesburg, right in town. Okay. And the place out on the river was sort of their cabin. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, back in those days, to legally go to school at Johannesburg with them, we had to have a house in the yeah, school district. In Johannesburg. And so that became our primary residence, even though we spent most of our time out on the river. And Did they stay at the river line even when they were teaching? Yes, I mean we would we would stay out at the river all summer, uh, most almost every weekend, um, weeknights we'd often stay in town because it was right next to the school, mm-hmm. uh, and then 
probably back in the, you know, whenever School of Choice passed, back in the mid-90s, they sold the house in Joburg, added on to the place out at the river and made it into a, you know, a home. Um, but in those early times, until I was old enough to drive, you know, I was fly fishing Big Creek all the time mm -hmm. in front of the house, upstream, downstream. Um, you know, probably expanding my my zones as sure. I got older and braver. Uh, or the North Branch. I mean, it was very easy for either one my dad to go with me or my mom to to drop me off or hang out in the parking lot at Lovell's Bridge, Dam Four, Jackson Hole, <laughs> Kellogg's. Yeah. Did you ever bicycle over on your own with a rod or? I don't remember doing that. Okay. Um, that might have been a little too ambitious. I remember doing that once and when I needed when I grew up and I, I got my rod caught on the front the wheel. <laughs> chewed it all up. Yeah. Is it? Ate, it, I ate, ate the tip of a fly rod doing the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned a bridge uh, at your parents' place. There's not a bridge there now, is there? Because I remember we were they, bunny hunting and, and we were wading across. The yeah, so stream. where we went rabbit hunting is there, since this story that I just told you, when all of us kids got out of the house and they retired, they sold their old house there oh, with okay. 10 acres and rebuilt the log home that you've seen. All right, on that's a different acres. one than you so grew up in. The one I grew up in was upstream of there, the next got place it. upstream, and it was just, it wasn't a road bridge, it was just a little mm. footbridge yeah, that okay. went across the creek. Okay, And. And then once I was old enough to drive, uh, I, I remember I used to work at Cade's at the grocery store on busy weekends. Mm -hmm. And I, wore, I mowed uh, some lawns in the area, one of which was Hartman's Fly Shop. And started stashing away, hiding, hiding a little bit of money. I remember <laughs> making a little money drawer out of uh, cardboard and plywood that I would hide underneath one of my sock drawers or uh, t-shirt drawers, you know, because I was supposed to be, you know, at this point I'm 16, 17, junior in high school, saving money for college, which I was, yeah. Yeah. but I was trying to save the first, you know, four or 500 bucks for a new fly rod because I had suddenly, you know, seen these uh, Winstons and Sage fly rods of the worlds and they were more impressive than my my browning uh, fiberglass and still remember uh, one day in the spring I had enough money saved up and uh, had managed to hide it from my parents and you know went went on a little shopping spree and I must have been conscientious about supporting the local businesses then because I I decided to buy the fly rod at Ray's and the fly reel in line at Gates. Oh <laughs> and Josh Nethers was the guy working behind the counter at Ray's then, and uh, that's sort of when he and I hit it off and started our friendship, and he had me out on that lawn casting all those sage fly rods, and and then on the way back through Gates, I had to get a reel, and Alex Lafkus was uh, behind the counter there, and he's the you know sort of the start of getting to know him, so. Um, and what was foolish about that, I didn't know any better, but you know, most of these places, if, if you buy the rod and the reel, they usually give you the fly line. And so I ended up they, buying the rod. They, did, they didn't do that. Well, I bought the rod at one place and the reel and the line at the other, so I didn't get the didn't get a free line. Yeah, so then I had my, my new Sage rod and my new Ross reel, and I think at that time it was a, a fluorescent green uh, Cortland laser fly line, which, you know, uh, well, it was pretty exciting. Nice reel too. Yeah. You still have so, it? I don't have that anymore. I don't have that. Uh, but anyway, so then, you know, I had a, a car, uh, you know, could use my dad's truck or my mom's car, so, and it had a driver's license, so then I could suddenly, you know, was expanding my horizons, fishing horizons, but, you know, never really... You know, at that time, I had never really fished the Big Water or the Mainstream or the South Branch. I mean, I see it was primarily the creeks and the North Branch. Did you fish with other guys or mostly on your own, Joe? Uh, both, you know, mm -hmm. with friends, with my dad, uh, Bob Smock, 
was a friend sure. of the good friend of the family. He took me out a couple times, mm-hmm. um, and I think you know my junior and yeah before my junior year and before my senior year of high school, I worked over at H and B Carbide in Lewiston in the summer, which was you know a good life lesson. Uh, employment for a young kid, but not a fun way to spend the summer. Mm-hmm. So I was always kind of looking for a way out of that. And um, the spring that I graduated high school, which was uh, spring of 98, bought a riverboat. Had some, uh, one of my dad's friends help me make my riverboat trailer. And Bob Smock Jr. sort of took me under his wing. And I became sort of Bob's second guide when he needed another guide for his float trips. And um, some of those early floats were awfully scary. <laughs> in what um, way? Every way you can imagine. <laughs> Running you know, into snags and... People, snags, where's the takeout? You know, it's okay. dark. Is the car there? You know, some of my first, because they started probably right when I got out of high school in the middle of June. And so now you're fishing at night. And, you know, while I had fished my whole, you know, most of my life, I was relatively new at running a riverboat. And many of these sections of river, (laughs) uh, I remember my, my first or second float trip, which is still one of the classic stories that often gets retold with some of the Big Creek Lodge guys, was a hex float on the Manistee River probably on about the 20th of June in 1998. And it was Bob Smock and I. Uh, I still can't remember exactly where we were, but we had shuffled a boat in somewhere downstream of CCC Bridge, and we were gonna float down to three-mile takeout. And I had only ever been on that section of river, I think, twice in my life, and both times, were within a week prior to that. Oh, just been there. I've just been there. Hmm. And I don't know what, you know, I have no idea what I'm doing. And at night, it's dark. It's going to be at night, you know. What, what starts out as a fishing trip, these fishing trips quickly became, how do we, how do I survive? <laughs> I'm serious. How do I, I mean, I don't even care. It gets dark. I don't even think of it. Who cares about catching a fish? How do I get this boat? To the point landing, a point B. <laughs> without killing somebody or having somebody, you know, tip us over because we're running into a spot. Uh, but I still remember that very first float. Two of the Big Creek guys, Rex Schlebaugh and Jake Shinners, who have since become really good friends and longtime clients, uh, show up there, and Bob Smock and I are there with our boats already in the water. And they they come in and they parked at the top of the hill and. You know, they're unloading their bags. It's probably 8 o'clock in the evening, and everybody's excited. And, you know, I, I quickly see Rex has immediately sized up the situation, and he has gathered all of his fishing gear and his duffel bags and is running them down to the river and putting his stuff in Bob's boat. <laughs> so Jake Jake is stuck with me. Uh, Jake, Rex picks... Bob. Yep, Jake is stuck with me. We uh, we push off, uh, you know, a couple hours before dark, and I don't think we're two or three bends downriver, and I realized that I left my flashlight in my truck. Oh, and we're far enough away, I can't go back. I'm, I'm intimidated enough and frightened enough uh, that I don't say anything to Jake because I don't want him to think I'm an utter fool, which he probably already does anyway. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the rest the rest of that float, you know, kind of follows that pace and goes from there. But somehow did, we made it out of there. Did he have a light at all? He had a flashlight, but, you know. Jeez. You J- Jake would fish? tell it. Uh, I don't remember anything. I, may, I remember just, we made it to the landing and just we lived, lived to... Start breathing about yeah. time to get shore. Yep. <laughs> I don't, You're 18 I don't, years old. Yep, 18 years old. Uh, so so that, a, that was the start of it. And that first summer, you know, I probably did seven or eight guided float trips with Bob. Um, a lot of them with Big Creek Lodge guys? A lot of them with Big Creek Lodge guys. You know, yeah. three or four of them were hex floats, and then three or four of them were in the summer. And 
And then I went away to school, to college. And, uh, you know, at that point I realized, you know, that was kind of fun. And that's a lot more fun than working in the carbide factory. <laughs> and the way the schedule lines up with the, with the college year, this could be a perfect summer job mm-hmm. for a college mm-hmm. kid. But I knew that I needed more than seven or eight float trips to make that my summer gig. And somewhere along the course of that winter, you know, began having conversations with Rusty, um, you know, sort of nervously inquiring about employment opportunities, whether it was in the fly shop or guiding. And I think as it turned out, uh, one of the guides that they had at that time had passed away that winter. So they had an open spot. Um, And I don't, you know, I never met that fellow. I don't know. I don't remember who it was. Uh, But anyway, somewhere along the way, Rusty said, yeah, you know, we need a guide. You're going to be the fifth guide. You've got George and Charlie and Craig and Jimmy in front of you. Charlie Weaver. Charlie Weaver, Mm -hmm. Craig Perry, George Alexander, and Jimmy Calvin. So at that time I was 19, Jimmy was probably 35 or 40, and then the other three guys were older, retire, you know, retiree. Um, and very, very steep learning curve, you know, back in those days, that was, that was certainly before the cell phone craze. Mm-hmm. A lot of, you know, well thought out emails back and forth with Rusty where he is trying to help me out and sort of explaining things and and uh, all the different sections of river and the characteristics and so it was a pretty steep learning curve and I'm and you were you were about 19 at the time I would have been 19 so when I came back from my first year of college you know in yeah. early May where'd you go to school I went one semester at Northern and then transferred to Central and then ended up finishing at Central, Central Michigan. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, hit the ground running early May, got my, you know, made sure I had all my guiding requirements. Uh, I was the fifth guide on the depth chart, which meant I was reasonably busy in June, mostly busy in May. And then July and August would have been pretty sparse back sure. then. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Probably did 30 or 40 guide trips that first year wow. in, in three and a half, four months. And worked in the fly shop when I wasn't guiding. And, um, you know, just had, it was, a, you know, an incredible learning curve. I mean, uh, just the, the character of the different sections of river and, I mean, really fascinating stuff for a 19-year-old kid. And really, at that time, you know, the envy of most of my friends, <clears throat> my college friends. Sure. That, to be a guide. Yeah, to be a fishing guide in the summer and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, get paid pretty well. It's a lot better than for, flipping burgers or uh, yeah. working in a car. Yeah, or, <laughs> you know, being stuck in a library or something also. So, were were the, the guys above you on the depth chart? pretty helpful to you or did was there a wean-in period or yeah I mean I'm sure they were I'm sure they muttered a lot of things under their breath and <laughs> when I wasn't around because I mean I was clueless I mean I was totally clueless I mean I you know my my Everybody heart my heart was in the right place but I you know I didn't know what I was doing and I'm sure I'm sure Rusty was very careful about who we we put you with? We put me with in those early years. Um, Do you have good memories of the clients or sports, as they used to call them? Most of them. Pretty decent. Yeah, yeah. Most yeah. of them are great. Uh, yeah. I, yeah, but I they were helpful. I mean, Charlie George was only around for a year or two, and then he he got sick and passed away. Uh, but yeah, they were they were helpful, and you know, I'm sure. Of course, you're on your own when you're on the river. Yeah, yeah, but. You know, I, I could always go to them and ask them questions or ask them for help. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's really interesting how that part of it has changed because, you know, I guess that's been 20, 21, 22 years ago. You know, when I started, you had the guides in the area. And I'm sure this is true 
most fly fishing destinations that you would talk about, not just the Osado, but you know, most of the guides were middle-aged or older retiree type. Mm -hmm. And I was the 19-year-old punk kid. kid. And now, most places you go, there's a lot of young, you know, guides that that's what they've chosen to do for a mm -hmm. living. Mm. A lot of the old so, guides say it's a young man's business now. Yeah. <laughs> Joe, I heard a great story about a guide in Montana who uh, his, his clients always got the biggest fish. And uh, he had actually tattooed on his arm uh, a, a mark 18 inches. And uh, one night in a bar, the rest of the guides were looking at this guy and saying, you know, I don't know about this guy. And they held him down and measured it. 16 and a quarter inches. <laughs> Dr drum him out of town. <laughs> uh, that's <funny. laughs> Now, would you, were you tying flies uh, at this time? When did you start that? I started tying flies in one of my early college years. I can't remember exactly which year it was. It was not right when I started guiding. It would have been maybe in my third or fourth year of college. Before that. And... The, the reason that I started, I was sort of forced into learning to tie flies. I remember being at Mount Pleasant at CMU in the dead of winter and the transmission went out of my truck. <clears throat> and I didn't have any money. To, so explain my story to Rusty and Rusty, you know, came up with this idea that he's going to teach me how to tie flies. And we're going to start with a simple... And I still remember that we call he called it the JTP nymph, and it was a little bead-headed nymph tied on a scud hook, which only had a thread body, maybe gold tinsel, and then a little uh, tuft of uh, crystal flash coming out of the, the back of it. So it was the fastest, Simple. simplest, and the JTP nymph was the Joe Truck Payment nymph. I love it. <laughs> so. I had to crank out, you know, whatever my truck payment was. You know, I can't remember if he fronted me a thousand bucks or whatever it was. That was my introduction out of necessity to fly tying, which obviously he was grateful to make that whole thing happen and uh, for me to get my truck fixed. And that's so that, a great. That's story how I started tying, and um, you know, I enjoy tied commercially all through college. And even a little bit after. But, but you made uh, enough money to get your transmission fixed? At that time, yeah. From uh, tying yeah, the tying JTP nymph. That was the start of it. That you know. That's that, a great story. That's what this uh, interview is all about. Yeah. Those that are, was, that was kind of fun. So, you know, the, <laughs> you guys are fly tires, so you, you know this, you know, certain uh, tricks and methods and mm -hmm. basics that you get down in fly tying and then suddenly you can tie almost anything you want and mm -hmm. so the truck payment nymph was you know what is what can i learn the quickest on and crank out the fastest makes uh, the box fix my truck and then production. you know <laughs> then graduated on to more yeah. you know exciting that, that flies fly tying community is amazing about being helpful you know, you talk to somebody and they'll give you a little trick and it's, it's none of this, it's, you know, my secrets, they're very open about, oh, sure, try it this way. And it's amazing how just a few tips can simplify tying tremendously. Right. Just simple. Do you, you know, kind of going back to what I was asking earlier about the older guys, do you, do you is the networking changing that way these days, a more open exchange of information than perhaps in days past? I would say so. Yeah, I would say so. Um, you know, some of that is maybe, you know, how attitudes have changed in the fishing community and the mm -hmm. guiding community, but more than anything, it's got to be just the, the mode of, you know, communication. And now <clears throat> there's this network of texting and email and social mm -hmm. media and cell phones where everybody can know everybody's situation, you know. How, where were you yesterday? How was the fishing? Who was over here? 20 years ago, there wasn't that. You know, there wasn't uh, a, 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 an immediate transfer of information in a network uh, amongst the guiding and the fishing community uh, that you 
need in some ways to stay on top of mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what's happening. And you know, you guys know how the fickle these hatches are, and oh, you, stri- you know, oh, weather yeah. patterns and stream flows, and yeah. um, so you know, I I think that I was thinking about this on the drive down here this morning. You know, um, back then, you know, you just went fishing. You just went fishing. Mm-hmm. You meet your client. And you went and spent the day on the river and you went fishing. You did whatever you could do to make your best guess. Yeah, but I mean, you make, in terms of your weather report, was what they said at 11 o'clock on the news the night before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, your your stream. Maybe may completely different 20 Yeah, miles your, away. your stream flow <laughs> report is what you see when you look out on the lawn yeah, at Gates yeah, or yeah. maybe what you remember from yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you didn't know. I mean, you know, I didn't know. How did Charlie Weaver do the day before? Or mm-hmm. Craig Perry mm-hmm. or Bob Smock or Jerry Reed? I didn't know. Or where the hatches were, heavy yeah. and light. And... and so that has all changed. I think there's, you know, some good has come out of that. Obviously, it's easier to make educated attempts now based upon the data we have for different stream flow gauges, water temperatures. Mm-hmm. That certainly helps us decide where we might want to go on a, div- a given day. Weather, when we talk about dangerous weather, mm, uh, mm. now we're much more, back then you didn't, you just went fishing and you got what you got. Uh, so there's some good that comes out of that, but I also think, you know, to me, a lot of the, a lot of, maybe not a lot, some of the experience and some of the wonder is mm-hmm. gone now. Oh, some of the mystery and some of the surprise. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. At least for my, maybe not for my clients, because yeah. they're only out on the river X number of days a year. Yeah. But, uh, and I don't mean that because I'm saying that I always pick the right spot and it always happens how I want sure. it to be. But when I think of some of my most memorable days of just, if you just want to talk about pure fishing or, or hatches or fish catching, you know, a lot of those are many years ago where... You know, when I met the client, I, I still remember, you know, not having a good feeling about the day, Didn't know what just I... sort of picking a stretch of river because we thought it was going to be a pretty float and, and stumbling uh, into it. magical yeah. fishing, yeah. magical fishing. And now you still see moments that surprise you, but most of it is, it's, it's more calculated mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. based upon this, you know, transmission of information amongst everybody and the weather, you know, the you hourly that weather. increases fl- pressure on the, on the watersheds? What, as- Concent- what aspect of it? Concentrated fish pressure, perhaps, just which might lend the fish to be less willing to, you know, take the risk. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think most people are good about I mean, at least in terms of social media or putting it out on the on the internet, you know, most people are smart enough not to talk about specific oh, yeah, yeah, location. Yeah. But mm-hmm. uh, it's helpful to the guy. You know, I mean, there's good and bad that comes out of it. Um, from a guiding perspective, you know, well, I'm guessing the, the good is a firewall between you're, you as a guiding community mm-hmm. and your clients as a occasionally consuming community where they're a lot more emotional and perhaps prone to, you know, we've got this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, from the guiding perspective, it's, it's helpful to know all the information that's out there, who mm-hmm. saw bugs where, you know, mm-hmm. if we know there was a hatch on this day, then there should be a spinner fall on this night, uh, in this mm-hmm. section of river. Um, but, it also hurts when, for my, you know, for me, if I try to avoid the crowds and go somewhere uh, else yeah. and take a chance, yeah. mm-hmm. or you know, talk to the client about it. You talk to the client about yeah. That, I mean, so here, here's what we can do. We can go to this section of river, and there's going to be a lot of people, but pretty sure bet that we're going to have hex flies or brown drakes, or we can roll the dice and go do this and not see anybody. And if we hit the first day there, you know, it'll be very, and, but then sometimes that circles back. Sometimes you get the client that you took out 
the day before or the night before and you had a horrible day of fishing and then the next morning at breakfast in town they they hear about the clients from the other guides that you yeah, know had these gangbuster nights so oh, it's geez. all you know but i would say yeah i mean some of the wonder is gone sure for me yeah some of the some of the most memorable times i've had on the river were you know floating the south branch uh when it was 500 cubic feet mm. in early june and mm -hmm really no good reason at all to be there and hmm. you know he had nine hours of brown drakes coming off and yeah. never <laughs> saw a person and lots of you fish know, feeding you couldn't you couldn't find a day of fishing like that anywhere in the world mm -hmm. so those days don't happen yeah, you, you, you still kind of focus in on the hatches or do you talk to the client about what they want to do uh, hatches are pretty important aren't they yeah yeah i mean the osable river you know, at its purest form is very much a dry fly river. And, you know, that's what it's most famous for and what makes it unique compared to a lot of other rivers are the incredible variation and consistency of the hatches. Um, but, you know, in recent years, they're, they're all, the fishing community is always trying to expand, uh, you know, streamer fishing, nymph fishing, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. many of those ideas are, streamer fishing yeah. started becoming popular 10 or 15 years ago on the Asable, yeah. yeah. nymph fishing the last few years. Mm -hmm. uh, well, but at its purest form, it's it's a dry fly river. Sure, but and, streamer fishing really expanded the uh, the season for a lot of people sure. too. You know, the dry flies are pretty much all over late right. July, August, and terrestrials, of course, but uh, you know, the top of the water was not as active, but streamer fishing, well, you can whack the log jams any time of year. Right. Even in the winter. Right. Ended up catching fish. Yeah, I mean, I would say every client has, you know, a unique, uh, you know, goal that they want to accomplish or an experience that they want. Mm -hmm. every, everybody's unique, and I have... You know, many of my clients are longtime clients, sure. and I know what they like mm -hmm. and what they want to do. And but they're, you know, they're they're any of my days could be anything from, you know, a, a beginner fisherman that wants to be out in the middle of the day and doesn't care if they catch a fish, but they want to learn about the sport and experience the river. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the other end of that would be. You know, a lifelong diehard angler who wants big fish and is willing to do anything to get them. Mm -hmm. And whether it's streamer fish or fish at night. So there's all, all in between. Do you do some uh, instructing with the, and, and is that based on the client that help them with casting? And sure. Do a lot mm -hmm. of that? Yep. Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, I would say, again, you see all different types throughout any given year in terms of clients they come from all over they have all different skill levels um, almost all of them have appreciated the incredible ecosystem that is the Asable I mean there's some people are disappointed with the fishing on certain days sure uh, but Fishing's actually not a good, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful river. There, it's you get that rare client that maybe travels the world fly fishing mm. and is used to showing up somewhere and you know catching fifteen to twenty inch fish all day long. Mm. And when mm. they get to the Asable, unless they hit a magical day, they're they're yeah, disappointed. Yeah. But ninety nine percent of people appreciate the river and then uh you know just like you guys there's a there's a chunk of us chunk of you guys out there that you know the asable river becomes their favorite place to mm -hmm. they lose interest in other rivers and this mm -hmm. you know the character of the river the challenge of the river the beauty of the river yeah know. it's special yeah are you able to recapture some of that wonder for yourself with the the younger or the beginning angler that's you know while wow, it's the first time they've ever been exposed to a watershed like that or to an experience like that? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah taking a lot of kids out fishing and uh, 
I feel like I'm, you know, and I'm not that old. I, I'm not that far. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm getting old, but I'm not that far removed from. Being a kid. Yeah, I mean, I. It's, Never it, lose it's a challenge for any kid anywhere these days with all of these, some of these things we're talking about with, you know, the way the world has changed, you know, sure. for, for a kid getting into fishing, uh, is it is it still the same magic and wonder that I experienced when I was a kid? I, I don't know. I hope it is. I think it's a kind lot of, of us old timers become kids when you put the waders on and you get that whippy stick in your hand and yeah. the fish are rising and special. It's like a little timer. Hey, we're coming back from a break, and uh, I think we're at the point in the show, Joe, where you may have a story or two to share with us. Gosh, lots of lots of good stories over the years. Um, some I probably have forgotten. Um, prob- probably one of the most memorable stories that I ever had guiding was about 10 or 12 years ago. And there was a, an older fellow staying at Gates by the name of Alex. I can't remember his last name, but he was basically legally blind. And he want, you know, was a, I can't remember exactly what the affliction was, but, you know, had, had been healthy all of his life and suddenly late in life uh, had, had something, I can't remember what it was, but something had happened and he basically lost all his vision and in a matter of hours. And anyway, he was staying up at Gates and somehow, you know, got signed up to go on a, a guided trip and, and got stuck with me. And, you know, it was just a half day float, probably in May or early June or even July, I can't remember. It was a daytime float and we went up and floated the North Branch. And you know, it was sort of fascinating because here was a guy that, you know, had been a lifelong fisherman and now suddenly couldn't see anything. Mm. And mm. so we don't... How old was he, you think? He was probably in his 60s or early 70s. And so we, you know, I'm, I'm thinking in my head how, you know, why is he taking a guide trip? How are we even going to do this? How is this even going to work? You know, I'm taking, yeah. I'm taking. Not only am I taking him to a river he's never, probably never been on, uh, or at least sections that we're floating through that he's never seen, and now he can't see anything anyway. So, um, but you know, he had all the gear, he had the drive, he, he had the excitement to do this, and had been a lifelong fisherman, so he had the skill, he knew how to fish. And so over the course of three or four hours, you know, we had to sort of work together and somewhere maybe halfway through the float or so, we had developed this rhythm together where I think there, it must've been in July. There were, there, it was a morning daytime float. There were slate wing olives coming off and fish rising. And so... To get him into some fish, you know, we we had this unique thing going, a team, team, teamwork going, where somehow I was able to orient him on where he needed to be casting, and you know, I don't know if he could sense the movement of the boat, but he was able to manage his his did slack you and his line. Clock or something, or how did you? How I don't you, even remember. Remember how you did it. And but somewhere along the way, we figured out the timing of it, and we almost had to, you know, if I saw a fish rise, and you know, one or two seconds before his fly was going to float into that fish, I would tell him to set the hook. Right. Moments before, it was like you had to anticipate this. Sure. And you know, there were a lot of misses along the way, and sometimes they tell him to set the hook, and the fish never came up and ate his fly anyway. But Somewhere along the way, somehow we had this unique rhythm going, and this guy was able to have a pretty good couple hours of awesome. catching fish. Um, but I've always, always remembered that and thought, you know, as a guide, that was one of the more unique and challenging days hmm. to take somebody's money and take them on a fishing trip down the river. And thankfully, the fish were in a were in a willing mood. Um, <laughs> 
but I thought that was a pretty but that's you know, that's it's it's neat that you can develop that kind of communication and oh wow it, you so know. you were telling to set the hook before the fish actually took the fly. I, th I think we had to. Have yeah. been. I think we it didn't start out that way, but yeah. allow for drift and yeah. reaction time. I mean, what, what started late. out as me yelling maniacally when somebody gets a bite, which I still do these days. <laughs> you know, what, by the time he heard it, processed it, you know, it was way too late because he mm -hmm. couldn't he couldn't see the the, yeah, the, the moments after. leading up to it. Mm -hmm. um, that's pretty cool. So how many that fish was, do you think he caught? Like a I don't half a dozen? Yeah. Half a dozen. Yeah. Yeah. Had to be a great day for him. That was a great day and you know, probably yeah. one of my more memorable and satisfying it's, it's days so awesome. and challenging days as a as a guide. And that, that story has always stuck out to me. Mm. Love it. Good story. You know, and sometimes you remember the you know, I mean I have this twenty years of memories of the maybe the the handful of Magical, magical, magical days on the river. Incredible fishing, incredible bugs, big fish, whatever, mm -hmm. whatever would make something memorable. But I have a lot of memorable, some, some of my memorable trips have also been terrible days of fishing. Downside. Terrible days of fishing, which mm. happens on the Asable. And um, so the common denominator between both of those things is that you know, the Asabo River is just an amazing, incredible, special, beautiful river, mm -hmm. whether the fish are active or not. And then the other thing is the people that I get to fish with. So, yeah. you know, whether it's a good day or a bad day of fishing, you know, a, a quality person, a memorable person, you know, makes you appreciate the day. Nice. So. <clears throat> you mentioned uh, a particular client that we won't, whose name we won't use. And uh, he was the first guy I took on a riverboat float when I bought a boat from Billy Lowe's, uh, Billy Lowe's boat. And uh, uh, Joe, he hooked me seven times, and it was about a two-and-a-half-hour float. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the session, he said, well, now you know what to expect. And I thought, uh, no, that's not going to happen again, <laughs> period. <laughs> Another friend of mine, Bill, uh, John Dallas, took the same man on a float. And the same thing, hooked him seven times. Uh, so uh, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't float with us anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but Jay Stefan told us one time that uh, he used to charge $35 for a float. And he came up with this rule. He said, okay, I'm tired of getting hooked. If you hook me, it's $5. If you draw blood, it's 10 He said, sometimes I come home from a float trip making more money from getting hooked than actually for the float. And, and uh, <laughs> somebody confirmed that the other day. I don't know who it was, but uh, uh, I, I'm not sure who it was. Uh, maybe uh, Hendricks, Mark Hendricks. But uh, you, you must have been hooked a few times. Been hooked a few times. <clears throat> nothing, uh, nothing too severe. I've never had any, no memorable severe medical emergencies or issues on the mm -hmm. river, thankfully. I remember uh, another memorable moment on a float a long time ago. Probably 15 years ago, I uh, was fishing with a guy from Florida, from Naples, Florida, who was a commercial real estate guy. And this must have been in the early days of cell phones. And anyway, he was, it was quickly apparent that he was, you know, not all that interested in the fishing and more interested in the inner workings of his cell phone. But he, uh, mm -hmm. he completed, negotiated and completed and finalized a $17 million home sale, you know, at lunchtime oh, for God's sake. On, uh, on the Osable River when I was his guide. And I really wish that I would have got some sort of commission off of that, but I didn't. So that was, you know. So he was doing this on the cell phone? Yeah, on the guide trip, you know. On the guide trip. He, he, you know, he was excited because he had, he had just finalized the... A Seventeen million dollar sale that he was going to get the commission on. So, oh jeez, oh my God. Um, now I I would think the you know the old time guides have got to have a lot of great stories. They I have mean, some that's good stories. that's probably where the great stories are. Well, they, I mean, they have some good ones. Um, the Jerry Regan and Jerry Regan Rob and, Woodland and, and Bob uh, Smock and yeah, we haven't talked to Smock yet. Ron Ricosi <laughs> and, and those, uh, Ricosi, those uh, John's talked to Ricosi. We had some good stories from Hendricks. We had some good stories from Lacey Stefan yesterday. 
Um, but uh, tell me about the, you know, sometimes shore lunches are a big deal. Um, some clients like a big meal. Some guys just want the sandwich and go. Uh, what, what are your experiences with that? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, the joke that I would always tell that you can, uh, for, for, the, for the client that has signed up for a guided float trip, you can always tell what your guide thinks the day's fishing is going to be like by the shore lunch that he brings. So if the guide shows up with a very elaborate, sophisticated steak dinner, et cetera, et cetera, uh, the fishing is probably going to be lousy. And if the guide shows up, you know, with a turkey sandwich on white bread and a bag of chips, he probably thinks you're in for an incredible day of fishing. But... You know, I have clients that, you know, some people that are are uh, certainly more interested in fishing and they don't want to take an hour out of their day to uh, spend time, you know, mm-hmm. cooking a meal mm-hmm. or, or going through that trouble. And then there are other clients that, you know, for them, part of the experience of the day on the river is taking an hour break or a couple hour break and... You know, firing up the barbecue grill and having a nice grilled lunch or dinner. So, mm-hmm. um, I don't you usually arrange that ahead of time with the client. I try to. What, yeah, what I try they want, to. What they expect. Yeah, yeah. I try to do that. Yeah. Um, you know, I go back and forth on it. Some days a nice, nice hot meal sounds good, and other days, mm-hmm. let's keep fishing. Let's fish. Yeah, yeah. that's what we're here to yeah. do. Lacey so. Stefan talked about. Uh, when they were guiding out of Twin Pines, I think they'd have sometimes seven boats, you know, mm-hmm. the guides coming down the river. And he was responsible for being in a particular place and setting up the meal. And they'd buy steaks and hanging steaks and there'd be big potatoes and, you know, a whole huge dinner going on. Uh, and that, that's kind of the old days. Uh, and he said back then, a lot of the, the guide trips weren't day trips. I mean, they'd come and camp for a week and they'd fish every day, maybe a little different stretch of the river, but uh, they were fishing all day and then back to camp at night. So that was a big part of their uh, routine, was this huge shore dinner every day, some place, wherever they, all of seven boats would end up with all the people. I said, my God, it had to be a zoo with all. He says, yeah, I was pretty busy. <laughs> it sounded like fun. We're learning a lot. It, it's a, this is a neat deal. Yeah. <clears throat> any other stories, any disasters that come to mind? Crises? No. You ever dumped some clients in the river? Knock on wood, I, ha- I haven't. Have. I, don't, I don't remember any. I mean, those those early years were disastrous many times, but um, I don't remember. I really don't ever remember any real catastrophic no tragedies. Probably not. Lost, not with my clients. Lost a few flies, I'm sure. Um, you know, have saved have saved a few people in the river. Not not fishermen, but some of the canoers or oh. people that were lost, things like that. But I've never had a, never had any huge issues with uh, any of that. But I, but I know it, you know, for a guide, especially in a river, a wooden river boat down on that big water in the dark. <laughs> I mean, I'm sh- I know I've been close <clears throat> so many times. Uh, you're, you're never that far away from trouble. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a friendly, gentle river, but you know, you get sideways. Those boats, you start taking yeah, water. I mean, it's it could happen to anybody. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm yeah. not. I don't think any of the any of the seasoned guides feel like they're immune to mm-hmm. uh, something like that happening at any sure. time. It, you never know. We've heard of a bunch of boats actually breaking. You know, they get on a jam or snag or something and turn, start taking water on, and the boat will actually snap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a rough way to end the flood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are your favorite flies in the river other than just the hatches? I mean, we know that, uh, you know, if it's a Hendrickson or a Brown Drake or whatever, but are there some, some attractor flies you like, Joe? Hmm. God, you'd hate to give those up. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. You don't no, have no. to give um, up a secret. <laughs> I, I keep hearing about the skunk that was created back by man. Yeah, the skunk is a popular. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't even think about any of that. I think... I, I enjoy, you know, I'm not huge into fly tying anymore, but I do enjoy 
trying to come up with some creative type flies, uh, different colors. I mean, some of these other guys have told you, you know, fly tying now, you know, the colors are mm. pink, purple. That's the new craze. And purple, we got yeah. purple grasshoppers. We got pink skunks, you know, yeah. mm -hmm. nature has never seen any of these things, yeah. but, um, the fish haven't either, so maybe that's well, why yeah, they part of it. Yeah, you know there so. was an article not too long ago, in, you know, one of the countless magazines we all read, but um, it was more of a scientific study about reds and pinks and how the color receptors in a trout eye interprets that color and what it looks like at various depths, you know, from them mm -hmm. from the surface. Mm. It's, it was pretty interesting stuff, and it, it's kind of easy to see how, you know, if that is the scientific, you know, basis, it's easy to see how people would migrate to some of the more outwardly weird-appearing colors. Right. <laughs> they, I, they just seem to have a different... I, you know, I think a lot of Osable fishermen, too, in the, in the guides, you know, they're because the river does get fished hard, you know, you're, everybody, everybody looking is, for a little slant. Yeah, everybody's looking. What's the next? Sure. You yeah. know, mm -hmm. fifteen, twenty years ago, when the Patriot exactly. parachute arrived on the scene, you know, exactly. that was like that was the magic story. pill. You know, it was like, oh my gosh, everybody's confidence. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I think, you know, maybe now some of those old. I mean, I like a lot of the old classic flies, the barber pole, mm -hmm. the Harry Drake, you know, a lot of that stuff. But I think maybe now. They come the, back around? Yeah. I mean, there are fewer people using all of those old classics because everybody's using the the newer synthetic colors. When you start to sit about and, and you look at your box and it's like, well, those always work for all those other guys. Why right. wouldn't they work still? Yeah. That's an interesting <laughs> thought. Yeah they're, yeah. Not, they're not seeing them as much. That's one. That yarn fly, that green drake that uh, Jerry McLean came up with. Right. Whoa, that's a great story. After World War II, he bought all his old sweaters and had his wife unravel them and made the yarn drake. Good fly. Yeah, yeah then, good fly. you know, those old guys have got to have, you know, Jerry Regan and yeah. Rob Woodland and those guys and their classic flies. And, you know, hopefully that stuff gets passed on to the next, mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. next generation. We're trying to get Jerry to do a book. And he keeps talking about it, but it hasn't been happened yet. It hasn't happened yet, so we're trying to figure out how to help him and augment his whatever <laughs> skill levels he needs because they're around. Yeah. Well, what so a great uh, morning! I really you. appreciate you taking time out. Yeah, of this your was day, fun. Your family, Joe. Yeah, this Thank was you. fun. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, guys. Much obliged. Great to have you here. Yeah. Have a good day. Thank you. All right, so that puts the wraps on another episode of the Backcast Podcast. A um, couple of quick notes. Uh, first, thank you to all of our listeners. We really appreciate it. Uh, appreciate the emails, the texts, the phone calls, uh, offering support and encouragement. Uh, if, you, if you enjoy us, tell a friend. If you really enjoy us, like, tell five friends. Uh, but our download numbers are improving. And uh, in that vein, uh, over the coming weeks, we're going to be trying a couple of new things. So bear with us. We're trying to make each episode... Uh, a little better uh, from a production perspective and uh, most importantly we're just we're having a great time doing this and uh, sharing these conversations with you so uh, until next week as always mind your back cast <laughs>